morning. Hey, I want to ask you to do something. I, I know you've been standing up for a little while, but I want to ask you if you'd stand up just one more time because I'd like for us to have prayer as we get started this morning. I was thinking about it as we were singing this last song, Spirit of the Living God. And uh, I, I don't know about you, uh, I would imagine that most of you, like me, have been thinking about our country and just what's going on, it seems like, from one end to the other. Uh, we're so divided, and there's just so much hurt, and um, I'd like to change it, and I can't. I can't change one person, neither can you but the Spirit of the living God can. And so I just want us to talk to Him as the people of God and ask our God to move, to move on people's hearts and lives, not just in this service today, but all across this country. So uh, if you just bow, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we have the privilege of prayer. We, we have a God, as, as Christians, we have a God that... Um, that has ears to hear as people. You're, you're not a, a theory or a myth or a statue on a shelf, but you're the true and living God. And you are at work in the world. Sometimes it, it may be hard for us to see or imagine, but you are at work. And uh, I pray that you would work in this world in a way that only you can, that you would change the hearts and minds of people from coast to coast. Um, we pray, Lord, for a spiritual awakening. I do. I, I pray for that. That people would realize that putting your hopes in a in a government, even a, a government as great as ours, with all of its problems, still we have a, a government and a political system that the rest of the world just marvels at. But Lord, we, we can't put our hope there. We can only put our hope in you. And so that's what I do this morning. That's the way I, I'm leading our congregation today is just to lean toward you, to trust you, to trust that you're at work in the world and to, to call on you through the power of your Holy Spirit to change people and to change this world. And Lord, help us to also realize that you do that through your people. We can't do the changing, you do the changing. And Lord, maybe uh, the change needs to start in us. I pray for the hurt. I ask for the healing that needs to take place. And I just trust you with it all. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen? Thank you. You can be seated. Thank you, Adam. Appreciate that. So, uh, again, good morning. How, how are you today? You feel good? You, you look good for the most part. For the most part, you look, you look good. Uh, I, I had a, a, a friend, actually a couple friends, stop me on the way in. They, they of course, saw my cam jersey. And uh, it, it's funny how people stop and talk to me about the Panthers, and they talk to me like I'm the coach. <laughs> you know, what's wrong with their team? Why is Stewart doing this? I'm like, hey, look, I'm just a fan. I got the jersey, but I don't make the calls. And 
Right now, I just chalk everything up to preseason. So if you came in this morning in a slump, get over it. Praise the Lord, we're in church. And we still got the regular season to go, right? And uh, Cam's going to be playing next week, so that's a good thing. Anyway, I want to start this morning by asking a, a question, just, just to sort of get things going. H- have you ever missed out on an opportunity that later you regretted? Have you? We, we got one or two. Yeah, m- maybe, uh, maybe it was a job that you didn't take, or it could have been a, a date that you said no to. Uh, it could have been a date you said yes to. I don't know. Maybe that's your biggest regret. Of course, that's another message, right? Um, and, and maybe the missed opportunity was something that was life-changing, but it also could have just been something cool that you missed out on. Well, uh, last Saturday, some, some friends of mine texted me and said they had a couple tickets to um, uh, the PGA Championship out at Quail Hollow. It was the Sunday round. Asked me if I wanted the tickets. Of course, I just began to salivate even over the phone as, I, as I'm texting. And uh, so James and I got to go out to the, to the golf tournament on Sunday. Just had a, a, a great time. It works out with church. You know, it's a little different with the Panthers. Panthers start at 1. But I knew that the leaders were not teeing off out at Quail Hollow until about 2.45. So we were able to do everything with church, and I didn't have to run out on the service early or anything. Not that I would do that, but. So we, we got out there. The timing was perfect. Uh, we walked right up to the first tee box. Well, not right up to it because, you know, there's a crowd of people around. But we, we were able to, to watch the leaders tee off. And uh, James and I sort of know our way around the place because we usually get out to the, the Wells Fargo each year, at least to one of the rounds. And uh, so we're kind of familiar with the, the layout and that sort of thing. And so we're, we're kind of skipping around at the holes and, uh, you know, just going to some of our favorite spots. And uh, we were also looking at the tee time guide just to sort of figure out where some of our favorite players might be on the, the front nine of the course. And uh, we realized that Ricky Fowler was probably about, and do you know Ricky Fowler? If you're not a golf fan, this is just not going to make sense at all, but Ricky Fowler's one of James's favorite golf players, and I like him a lot too. Well, we realized that he was probably on about hole number six, and we were uh, at the green on number nine. And so I said, hey, James, why don't we just go over to the fairway on number eight? We'll, we'll get about where we know that these guys will be hitting their tee shots. And so we'll, we'll watch their tee shot come in, and then we can watch, you know, the different players, and of course, we're waiting for Ricky, we'll watch them, you know, take their second shot and play the hole out. So we found a place, you know, it was pretty much wide open on that fairway at at that point, found a good place. And while we were waiting on Ricky's group to come up, James and I are just talking back and forth, and he said, hey, wouldn't it be cool if uh, maybe Ricky hit us with this tee shot? Now, I'm just kind of like... I'm just laughing it off, too, and we're just kind of playing it, because, I mean, it's never going to happen, right? And uh, so James said, yeah, you know, what they do is uh, when one of these guys hit you with their tee shot or hit you with a golf shot, they usually give you something, like maybe a golf glove. I mean, maybe Ricky would give us a golf glove. Well, anyway, we're just sort of laughing about it and that sort of thing. Well, I I walked away from the rope line for just a couple minutes, and when I came back, to the same spot, 
there was a guy standing where I had been. And I know it was the exact same spot because James was still there. And he was leaning on a rope stake that, that was just right there at us. And I had been leaning on that same rope stake. So I know it was the exact same place. No big deal, though. I mean, you know, I walked away, and it, there's just plenty of room to stand. So literally, I just stood right beside him, and we watched for a couple other groups to come through, and James and I are just sort of shooting the breeze. So finally, Ricky comes up, tees off. Now, we're, we're sort of looking around the bend to see where his ball might be, and, and I, I lost it. I, I, I couldn't follow it. And then I heard someone in the gallery yell, four! And then I heard a thud, and I looked next to me, and the guy standing right beside me was bent over, rubbing his shoulder, looking down at Ricky Fowler's golf ball. And I couldn't believe it. And sure enough, you know, and then I'm, I'm asking James, I'm like, you sure that was Ricky's T-shirt? He says, yeah, that was, that was Ricky. I said, man, I... I can't, I can't believe it. And well, anyway, Rick, Ricky literally walks right up to us, you know, and, and as he's approaching the rope line in, in the gallery, one of the, the whole marshals kind of walked over to him. He pointed at the guy next to me. Yeah, that's the guy that you hit with your golf ball, that sort of thing. So Ricky didn't do anything about it right at first, you know. He went, looked over his ball, and literally, I'm standing here, and Ricky Fowler is standing right there. Can't, can't believe it. He, he gets his yardage, picks a club, lines up his shot. He's like 175 yards out and hits a nine iron. He had a nine iron because he had to go over a tree right onto the green. So we're just amazed. And then he walks over to his bag, drops his club in, took his golf glove off, put another one on, walks over to this guy, hands him my golf glove <laughs> and, and walked away. I said to James, you got to be kidding me. Talk about a missed opportunity. I, I should have been standing right there. I was standing right there. And I walk away for two minutes, and now this guy's walking off with my golf glove. I missed the opportunity. I missed the opportunity. So listen. I believe today you have a great opportunity, and I don't want you to miss it. In fact, over the next several weeks, you have the opportunity to encounter God and make some decisions that are beyond cool. You have the, the opportunity to make some decisions that will change the direction of your life. You're going to have the opportunity to set your life on a, a journey of faith, to learn how to live life like you never thought was possible. And that might seem like preacher speak, but it's not. I, I believe that with all of my heart. And I don't want you to let this opportunity slip away. See, here's what I'm convinced of. I'm convinced that lots of us listening right now, whether you're in this room or you're listening to this message out on our podcast, lots of us who are listening right now Right now, even if you're a follower of Jesus, there are lots of us that are living unsatisfied lives. Like we know there's more. We know there's something beyond what we're living. 
And, and maybe it's not because you're, you're doing something to destroy your life necessarily. Maybe it's, it's, it's not that you're on drugs or something. So you're not destroying your life that way, but you're wasting your life. And that's just as bad. It at least leads to the same place. And that can change. It can change starting today. Let me tell you a little bit about where we're going to go over the next few weeks, the next several weeks. This week and next week's messages are about preparing us for a series that I'm going to start on September 3rd, Sunday, September 3rd. And that series is called Greater Faith. And during that series, we're going to look into the lives of some of the greatest men and women in the Bible, men like Abraham, Moses, Noah, women like Ruth and Hannah and Esther. And specifically, we're going to look at how God used these people. And listen to me. These people who are fairly ordinary, but God uses them in amazing ways to make a huge impact in the world. And my goal in these messages is to teach and challenge and inspire, maybe even prod and poke and kick and drag and beg you to live the life that you were created to live. To stop just wasting time and wasting your life, but really get after life. Today we're going to look into the life of a man named Elisha. Say that name with me, Elisha. So if you have your Bible with you, open it up or turn it on and go to 1 Kings chapter 19. We're going to look at verses 19 through 21. And this is actually a part of the story that we looked at last week when we were digging into the life of Elijah. Say Elijah with me, Elijah. Two separate guys. There's Elisha and Elijah. Now, Elijah was a bold, godly man. But in chapter 19 of 1 Kings, and you guys remember this because we've been digging through his emotions for the last few weeks, he was going through a spiritual and uh, an emotional uh, slump. And Elijah and Elisha served God at a very difficult time in history. They both were serving God in the ninth century. And in the ninth century, Israel was in a mess. They were divided. Um, the people literally were divided. Their loyalties were divided. Um, many of them had turned away from the true and living God. And now they're following after idols or um, they, they're, they're not following the true and living God, and they're not following after these idols and worshiping them, but they've just rejected the idea that there is a God altogether. Sound familiar? And Elisha was taking it personally, and he should. He should. Listen, if you're a prophet, if you're a preacher, and you don't take the world you're living in personally, if it, if it doesn't hurt you, then there's something wrong with you. It should bother you. Well, Elijah was depressed and hurt and, and even broken. He, he had gone actually, I think, a, a little bit too far. 
And he was pining for the good old days when Israel was a godly nation. And he was wringing his hands and he was hurt and defeated emotionally because of the state of Israel in, in the present as he's, as he's leading, as he's preaching, as he's prophesying. And then he had lost all hope for the future. And so God works with him in chapter 19. You guys, we, we looked through this for, again, about three weeks. And what he said to Elijah was something like this. I want you to stop crying. I want you to stop weeping. Stop longing for the good old days, the, the days in the past that probably were not as good as you thought they were. And I want you to get on with it in the present. I want you to do the work of a prophet. And I want you to start preparing the next generation, specifically Elisha, for the future work that I'm going to do in the world. So I want you to listen carefully. Please, please. Each generation of God's people is responsible to see to it that the next generation is called out trained up and available to God for him to use in the work that he's still doing in the world. And so here's what that means for us. We've got to stop longing for the good old days. Whenever it is that you look back on the, on the good old days, I sometimes laugh um, to myself rather sarcastically, so I, I keep it to myself. When I visit family that lived down in Union County. That's where my mama's family is from. And uh, we ha- they, there's a family cemetery there. And so usually when we make a visit there, we'll go to the cemetery and, uh, you know, go to remember some of our loved ones, go to their graves, that sort of thing. And uh, usually it, it turns into a conversation about the past. And someone will start talking about the good old days and then I'm looking at a set of graves, like I, I think it's nine in a row. It's a, a whole family that died in the 1930s from the flu. To me, that's not the good old days. To me, it's not the, the good old days when you don't have air conditioning and the internet. Amen? But really and truly, if you, if you start talking to people that live back in whatever they call the good old days, when they start talking through it, they realize that really we live in the good old days right now. We've got to stop longing for the good old days that, again, were not as good as we really thought they were. We've got to stop complaining. And hey, look, I'm talking to me too. We've got to stop complaining about how bad everything is right now and get our rear ends to work on raising up the next generation of preachers and missionaries and workers in the kingdom of God. And this is something that God's been really putting on my heart, and it's something we're going to get into deeper over the next few weeks. Now, as you'll see in these verses, and there are only three of them, you'll see that Elijah did what God told him to do. He, he found Elisha. He anointed him, and he began to prepare him to take his place. That's what he's doing. Elijah is preparing Elisha to be his successor. 
And I'll talk more about this and get into the details as we unpack 1 Kings 19. Let's dig into it. Ready? I haven't lost you yet, have I? All right, good. Here we go. Elisha left there. Where is there? The cave he's been in for the last few days. He's been in there again emotionally hurt, and the Lord caught him out of there, and he said, look, I want you to get back to doing the work that a prophet is supposed to do. Get up, get out of here. So Elijah left there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, as he was plowing. Twelve teams of oxen were in front of him, and he was the twelfth team. Remember that because it'll come up later. Elijah walked by him and threw his mantle over him. Now, if you remember from last week, a mantle is sort of, it's, it's a coat. It's a coat that Elijah would have worn, but it's a coat sort of similar to other overcoats that men would have worn. But Elijah's was probably made out of camel's hair. And, and it was significant in that it represented his authority as a prophet. So it, it was very important. And he put his mantle over Elisha. Now, everybody knew what that meant. Elijah is tapping Elisha. He's anointing him. He's recognizing him as a prophet. A great honor. A great opportunity. So Elisha left the oxen, the team of oxen, ran and followed Elijah and said, please let me kiss my father and my mother and then I'll follow you. I'm not ready to go just yet, but give me a little time and I'll be ready. And then Elijah responds back and it's also, or it's almost like he responds to him in a way where he says, um, Hey, listen, you've got a great opportunity here, and I don't want you to miss it. This is an opportunity that only comes along once in a lifetime. Don't miss out on this. He said, go on back, he replied. But what have I done to you? What do you have to think about? What's more important than the work I've just called you to? So he turned back from following him, took the team of oxen, and slaughtered them. With the oxen's wooden yoke and plow, he cooked the meat, and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he left, followed Elijah, and served him. So these three verses are kind of like a footnote on Elijah's life. I mean, he's going to pop up again briefly in Second Kings, but again, only briefly. And as his ministry comes to an end, Elisha's ministry is just beginning. And one of the important things that I want you to know about Elisha, because we're going to look at him again in a few weeks, is that Elisha was just an ordinary guy. There was nothing special about him. Uh, his father wasn't a priest. He, he wasn't a part of the clergy. He wasn't a part of the government crowd. He's just a regular, ordinary guy. But God used his life in amazing ways. In fact, God did more miracles through Elisha than any other person in the Bible other than Jesus. So what was special about him? Why did God use him the way that he used him? There are two reasons. The first one is he was available. He made himself available to God. 
even though maybe he didn't have lots of gifts or lots of skills or some great ability, he was willing to say, Lord, this is what I have. I'm giving it to you. I talked to a, a lady yesterday at a memorial service that I did yesterday afternoon. And uh, she was talking about her husband's talents and her daughter's talents and her son's talents. And when she got to herself, she talked about herself as having no talent at all. Some people just think of themselves as no talent people. And I don't think that God's just looking for people who have lots and lots of gifts and abilities. He's not just looking for good looking, talented guys like Adam. He's just looking for people who will make themselves available to him. And that's what Elisha did. Elijah made himself available to God. But here's the other thing. Elisha was totally committed to God. Totally committed to God. He was all in with God. For the next few minutes, I want to talk to you about the power of commitment. You know, commitment is a bad word in our culture today, isn't it? It's almost like a curse word, like a four-letter word. People don't want to be committed to anything anymore. Even the important thing, people just don't want to be committed. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say something like, uh, I just can't commit to that right now. Or with a wince on their face, they'll say something like, Pastor, it sounds like you want me to make a commitment to that. Because we don't want to make commitments. We, we don't want to commit to jobs. We don't want to make long-term commitments in investments, financial investments. We don't want to make long-term commitments to marriage. And I think the reason for that is that we want to keep our plates empty. We want to leave some margin or leave some room on our, pray, our plates because we don't want to fill them up with things that we're afraid might be the wrong things. And so we just don't make commitments. And the tragic thing about that is that you can't do anything worthwhile in life that doesn't involve commitment. So we're going to talk about it. Next week, I'm going to give you the things I believe you should be committed to. But today, I just want to talk about three profound effects that commitments have in your life. And don't miss this opportunity. Don't look at me and, and think, I see that the stage is bigger. Jimmy, I thought you were going to just run from one end to the other today, and this was going to be so exciting. It doesn't seem so exciting, so I'm just not going to listen. Don't, don't miss this opportunity. Because let me tell you something, next week and the week after that and the week after that and, and the week's as long as you have weeks left on this earth will not matter if you don't learn the importance of commitments. So let's talk about them. Here's the first thing I want you to know about commitments. Write this down. My commitments show my values. My commitments show my values. In other words, my commitments show what I think is really important. Young ladies, listen. If the man you are dating says he loves you, but he won't make a commitment to you, then he doesn't really love you. You can't have love 
if there is no commitment. In anything, if you don't love it and you don't make a commitment, then you don't really love it. If you don't commit to him, you don't love him. If you don't commit to her, you don't love her. And there is, there is no such thing as love with no commitment. Think, think about it this way. I can say that something is important to me. But if I don't commit my time and my energy and my money to it, then it's really not that important to me. Like I can say that my family is important to me, but if I'm giving most of my time to my job or my career or to my hobbies like playing golf or to my buddies and not so much to my family, then my family is not as important as what I'm saying. You can see in the story that Elisha is committed. You can see that in the 21st verse when, uh, when Elijah says, uh, Elijah, you're going to miss out on a great opportunity here. And it's like in, in just a moment, we don't know how it's played out in, in real time, but it's like in that moment, Elisha says, yes, this is an opportunity. This is the direction I need to be going in. So he went back to his team of oxen, cut his away from the other 11 teams, slaughtered his oxen, took the yokes and the wooden plows, used those for a barbecue pit, and he grilled the oxen and had a barbecue for all of his friends and family. And in doing that, he is saying, I'm burning my boats. Remember that? I'm burning my boats. I'm totally committed. I'm committing my life to following after Elijah and learning from him what it means to really be a prophet of God. And I'm going to serve the Lord for the rest of my life. And check this out. Elijah was making a commitment to the Lord, an all-in commitment, before he really even knew what he was making a commitment to. See, he had no idea what the future held for his life, but he was willing to be all in and fully trust the one who holds the future. Over the next few weeks, you're going to have the opportunity to say and demonstrate by your actions. Lord, I'm all in. I'm committed to you and it, it doesn't matter what you want me to do or where you send me or what you want me to give. I am all in. I am fully committed. My commitments show my values. Here's the second thing that I want you to know about commitments. My commitments shape my life. My commitments shape my life. I become whatever I'm committed to. So if I believe that making money is the most important thing in life, guess what's going to shape my life? Making money. Uh, students, if we have any students left in the room, if, if I think that the most important thing in life is to be popular, then being popular is what will drive my life. 
And I would say this to our students. I would say it to people at any age. You show me what your commitments are, and I'll show you who you are. I'll show you what you are. I will show you what your future is because your commitments reflect your values. And your values and your commitments, they determine what your character is. And your character writes your life into stone. So you have to choose wisely. You make your commitments, and then your commitments make you. So what are you committed to? Who are you committed to? See, I think the temptation would be for us to go home this afternoon and make a list of things we ought to be committed to, when I think really what you ought to do is go home and make a list of things that you need to uncommit your life to. There are a lot of us walking around and sitting around just going through life and we have no margin in our lives. We have no room to serve the Lord. We can't do the right things because we're committed to the wrong things. What are your values? What are you committed to? What are you giving your life to? And then here's the third thing I want to say about commitments. My commitments determine my destiny. My commitments determine my destiny. Life on this earth is brief. Do you realize this? It doesn't last forever. And in fact, the average life span right now is about 70 years. That means that you have approximately 25,550 days. And some of us are well into that 25,000. And where you spend your eternity depends on your commitments, and one in particular. And that is whether or not you have committed your life to Jesus. And he asked a question to his disciples once, and it's a question we all have to deal with. What does it profit a man or a woman if they gain the whole world, but in the process they lose their soul? Every day, you are trading your life for something. Every day, you exchange another day of living for something else. What are you exchanging your life for? Is it food? Is it pleasure? Is it TV or games? I mean, what are you exchanging your life for? And is it worth it? Is what you're giving your life to, is it, is it worth it? I want you to think about that this morning, but I want you to think about it this whole next week. I want you to think about what you are exchanging your life for. And I want to leave you with this. We're going to pray here in just a moment. I'm, I'm in my 21st year of ministry. And I don't think I've ever been more excited to be in the ministry or to be the pastor of this church. I believe that God has been preparing us and positioning us to do things that 
maybe you thought were possible, but I didn't. And so here we are. We're at the end of August. We've got September, October, November, December coming up. The, the best months of a church. And then we'll flip over into January and a new calendar year will start. But the thing is, because I've been doing this for a while now, the thing is that by the end of this year, some of you won't be here. You won't be here because you dropped your commitments to the Lord. And you're spiritually going to be washed up, checked out. You won't be growing in your faith. You won't be in this church or any other church. And, And why is that? I'll tell you now ahead of time in case I'm talking to you. It's because your commitment wasn't deep enough. You you were convinced, but you weren't really committed. See, we're all convinced that exercising and eating healthy is right. Right? So why aren't we all lean and mean and healthy? Because we're convinced, but we're not committed. So you're convinced that a commitment to God is the right thing. You're convinced of what you should be doing. The problem is you won't be here in six months or you won't be here in another year because you were convinced but not committed. And so when tough times came along, your casual, convenient Christianity just went out the door and so did you. And so you're not going to make it. And so I just felt like I needed to warn you as your pastor to make a deep commitment to the things that matter the most, the things that show what you value, the things that shape your life and determine your destiny. Let's pray together. Would you stand with me? Once you're standing, if you just bow your head and close your eyes, I want to pray for us. Heavenly Father, I'm grateful for your word. I'm grateful for the challenge of it. Lord, help us to pay attention to it. Help us to not be ho-hum about what you want to say and what you want to do in our lives, the things you want us to be committed to. Lord, as over the next couple of weeks, as as we get ready for this greater faith series in September, I pray that you would help us to think about what we're committed to. Of course, what we should be committed to, but then, Lord, also the things that we're committed to that just keep us from being truly committed to the right things. Show us the wrong commitments. Or or maybe, maybe they're not wrong commitments or even bad commitments. They're just not the best commitments. And prepare us for what you want to do in our lives, in the lives of the others in this church, people all over this community, and all over the world. 
And like Elisha and other men and women you've used in the past, make us available and truly committed. Jesus, it's in your great name that we pray. Amen. God bless you. You dismissed.